turn with me now in your Bibles to Job chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from Job chapter 2, just to provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning is from 1 Peter 4 and 5. We'll turn there in a moment, so be ready to turn to 1 Peter 4 and 5. But first, let's look together at Job chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him. To destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Amen. This is our second encounter in the book of Job between God and Satan. There's much here that is confusing and debatable. Please don't get lost. In those details. The point of the text in both the first story and in the second. Is one that God is sovereign. Satan is coming and going according to God's leave. Satan is God's tool. His creature. It is God who is in control. God who is causing all things to come to pass. But secondly, see that Job is God's servant. By that, we mean that Job is willing to maintain the glory and goodness of God, whatever he himself experiences. So often in life, Christian faith comes down to this fact. Are you going to believe what the Bible tells you or what you see? For so often... What we experience in life does not seem to jive or align with the promises of God. 
The providence and the promise of God often seem at conflict or odds. Who are you going to trust? What are you going to trust? And Job sets us an example of a Christ-like figure saying, there is a God and he is good, regardless of what happens to me. With that in mind, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Our sermon passage this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. And we'll be reading down through chapter 5, verse 11. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 5, 11. We'll continue here this sermon series on shepherding and looking at what it means to be a shepherd in the church. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 5, 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part... He is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. The elders who are among you I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace 
who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Perfect. Establish. Strengthen. And settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen. This past week, I filled out and filed my taxes. It reminded me of that great old adage, there are two things in life that are guaranteed, death and taxes. Do you know how old that is? Peter's audience knew that line. You can actually find it in the Roman Empire, death and taxes. They're the things you can find in life. But it seems that the apostles who wrote the New Testament are often at pains to impress upon their audience that there is more to life than death and taxes. Not only are you certain of those two things, but beloved, you can be certain there will also be sin and suffering. It's not just that you go through life having to pay taxes once a year and having to die at the end of life. It's that everything in between also consists of sin and suffering. You see, there's a reason for death and taxes. Sin and suffering. But so too, the apostles are often at pains, as Peter is today, to impress on the people of God this truth. There are other forces at work in this world. The other two things, in addition to those four, that you can be absolutely sure will happen to you in your life is this. Grace and glory. Beloved, you can be sure that your life will include the grace and glory of God. You see, the good news for us this morning is that Jesus is sweeping away suffering with eternal glory. That's what he's doing in our life. He's scrubbing off the sin, the suffering, the death and the taxes. And he's scrubbing it off with eternal glory. This is truth for us to believe, to live this week. That Jesus is sweeping away suffering with eternal glory. So this week, suffer like your Savior. Think about this a little bit this morning. Think about it with me. Let's look at the text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Notice that he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though something strange happened to you. Peter intentionally uses the word twice in the sentence, which we're taught in grammar school is bad writing. You don't use the same word twice in one sentence. But it's really good writing when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says the people of God need to understand this. It's not strange to suffer. Now, that's a universally true principle among humanity. But notice that Peter isn't addressing humanity writ large. He says, beloved. Is that not a painful word to see in the text? 
When Peter says to the church, beloved, he speaks of his own love and affection for the audience. But I think he also speaks of the fact that these are the people who are loved by God. Beloved, you who are subjects and objects of God's love, don't think it strange that God would lay upon you suffering. There has never been a human more loved in all the world than Jesus Christ. And there has never been a human who has suffered greater agony in all the world than Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not think it strange that the love of God should be accompanied by great suffering, by fiery trials. No, instead of being surprised or alarmed that the love of God comes with it, fierce trial and great suffering, Peter says to his audience, rejoice. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice, and he gives us a reason that there is a partaking of Christ's suffering. You see, we as the body of Christ suffer with our head who is Christ. We who are the bride of Christ suffer with him who is our husband, Christ. There is something in our sufferings that unite us to Christ, that display our union with Christ. And this should bring us joy. Notice that it is the simple fact that I suffer, Jesus suffered, hey, we're together, Jesus and I suffer, that brings us joy. This made an impression on me as I was thinking about it because I can remember standing in a boiling hot, I always call it the hey Mao, you guys always look at me funny, attic, loft, the upper part of the barn, where the hay gets stored. And I'm there with my dad and we're soaked in sweat and we're thirsty and we're overheating and we're covered in dust and our hands are rubbed raw from grabbing the bales of hay and stacking them. And I am so happy because I am suffering with my dad. We're working together and it's really cool, metaphorically speaking. It was really hot. It was summer. This is that feeling that Peter is talking about to the church. That when we suffer, we yet have a source of joy that is not dried up. It is the realization that this suffering makes me like Jesus who suffered. That my suffering is parallel to Jesus' suffering. And that just as he was beloved, so I am beloved. But Peter also offers this expectation of greater joy in verse 13. That when Jesus' glory is revealed, we may be glad with exceeding joy. So here on earth, while you suffer, you can have joy. The joy of realizing that your suffering is a similarity to Jesus. But wait till heaven. When there is exceeding joy, overwhelming joy, in which you get to see with your fleshly eyes. How similar to Jesus the suffering made you. Is that not fantastic? That we on earth can by faith see or believe that our suffering is making us like Jesus. And it gives us joy. 
But one day we'll actually see Jesus face to face. And when that happens, we'll realize it's true. All that earthly suffering, it made me like Jesus. And there is an exceedingly great joy that comes. So Peter says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, if you suffer because you wear the name of Jesus, if you suffer in order to be sanctified from sin, if you suffer in order to bring forth the goodness of the gospel in your life, blessed. He doesn't actually say blessed are you. You see that's in italics because the New King James had to add that in for clarity. Peter just ends with the great rhetorical weight of the word. If you suffer with Jesus, blessed. Happy. Joyful. Life is good. I'm like Jesus. I'm with Jesus. There is a happiness that comes from the spirit of glory and of God resting upon us. We are united by the spirit of Christ to Christ in our suffering. This becomes then the foundation of what Peter is saying in our text. This is the important point for us this morning, beloved. That suffering is not strange, but rather a source of joy as it throws us back into our union with Christ. As it brings us into the blessing of knowing Jesus, of being like Jesus. This is of paramount importance as we consider the office of shepherds and the office of elders. When elders suffer, they need to remember. It isn't always about some sort of practical outcome. Oh, I'm suffering so that my church can grow. Oh, I'm suffering so that this saint can grow. Sometimes it's about you growing. Sometimes it's about the revelation of the glory of God in Christ who bore a cross for his people. It is about Jesus. And about people discovering through their suffering how sweet Jesus really is. To this end, Peter then gives us a warning that this great comfort that what we suffer is meant to open our eyes to the reality of our union with Christ. It's meant to show us how much Jesus loves us and meant to bring us into that love with Jesus. He then says there's an ethical component. That great comfort comes with an obligation. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or busybody. Does one of these feel like not the other? Don't suffer like a murderer. One whose heart is so full of hatred that you would want to end the life of another human being. Such a person suffers. A person who so hatefully opposes the life of another is truly one who suffers. Peter says, don't suffer like that. Don't suffer the life-ending hatred of a murderer. Likewise, don't suffer as a thief. One who so deeply covets the goodness and welfare of others that you just take it who steals possessions and property and prosperity and even happiness from others. 
Do not seek to end the life of others. Do not seek to consume the goodness of others. Or even as an evildoer by this, Peter probably means something religious. That's the phrase, the word used in the Jewish context of, of one whose religiosity is completely gone. One who just practices open wickedness. Don't be one who indulges your selfish appetites. We might say it that way. Who freely gives themselves over to their sin and says, hey, it's all about me and whatever I want from life. Don't suffer the way those sinners suffer. But then fourthly and finally, he says, as a busybody, as a meddler, as one who is invested so heavily in other people's matters that they neglect the state of their own soul. They are so invested in other people's matters, they are trying to take on to themselves the responsibility of Christ in becoming someone else's savior. Peter warns us that while suffering ought not to be strange, it likewise ought not to be a cause for sin. What often happens to us when we suffer? We look for the exit. We want to get out of pain no matter what it takes. And we start grabbing life from other humans and saying, I'm suffering, come pour your life into me. And we start grabbing possessions from other humans and we're like, feed me, comfort me, clothe me, do whatever it takes, give me all your stuff, relieve my pain. We fill up with suffering and we start looking to others and saying, let me have my way, let me be my way. My pain justifies my selfishness. We start investing in other people's lives and saying, let me fix you. Let me clean you up. Because if you're a better person, I'll be a happy person. I've never experienced that in pastoral ministry. Friends, Peter warns us that if we are to suffer and to suffer like our Savior, then we are to suffer in repentance of sin, not in pursuit of it. So too, he says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. Just as we should not be surprised by suffering, nor should suffering be a cause to sin. So thirdly, he says the suffering should not be a source of shame. We should not be embarrassed to suffer, he says, as a Christian. This is a very special phrase in the New Testament. The word Christian in Peter's day when he's writing is a new word. It's a word that's just been coined by those in the Roman Empire who don't like the followers of Jesus. Literally in the Greek, Christianoi, a little Christ. It's not a complimentary phrase. Those who run around trying to be little Jesuses. Those who think of themselves as little Christs. And everything they talk about is Jesus. And everything they think about is Jesus. And whatever they're trying to do in life, it's somehow centered in Jesus. It was an insult. This is the only positive use of the word in the New Testament. Peter grabs that insult and says, let it be a badge of honor. You know what? I am somebody who's running through life talking about Jesus every chance I get. Sorry, he died for me. He rose again for me. In him is my life and it's life eternal. 
Yes, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Yes, I'm going to sing his praises to the heavens. Yes, my life is going to be conformed to his standards. He's everything. So Peter says, if we suffer for the name of Christ, if we suffer for being called Christian, then let's rejoice. Let's not use the suffering as a guide for sin. Let's not use the suffering as an opportunity for shame. But rather in suffering, let the pain, let the sorrow drive you back into the joy of being united to Jesus. Peter says, for judgment has come to the house of God. It is time for God's people to recognize that our hope is first and last in Jesus. Those who do not obey the gospel of God, by the way, obey the gospel is repent and believe, right? The gospel is receive Jesus. To obey the gospel is to receive Jesus, to humble ourselves and welcome him. Those who obey the gospel are scarcely saved. It is a fierce suffering that we undergo. It is an intense sanctification that burns within us. And even those who hold fast to their union with Christ find their lives torn up, ripped to shreds, and tattered. It is amazing that even the most staunch believers can expect a life of hardship. A life riddled with sin and with suffering. I remember an aged saint in his 80s, he's actually still alive today, saying to me once on a Sabbath morning, Noah, I know I sin less, but I hate it more. It hurts so much more now. It was stunning to me as a a 20-something to realize the guilt and the grief of my sin would not lessen but intensify as I grew in godliness. There is a judgment visited upon us that is for the salvation of our souls. And so Peter concludes, let us suffer according to the will of God, trusting him to do well his work. Let us believe all those metaphors throughout scripture in which he is called the good shepherd in which he is called the potter and we the clay, in which he is the author and we are living out the story he is writing. Let us believe that his mastery over our lives, which sometimes steer us into the darkest and most desperate places, is ultimately for our salvation. We have visited this verse many times and we should visit it many more times again. Romans 8, 28. How many things in your life are for your good? Starts with A and ends with LL. All. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why did your heavenly father afflict you? Because you are his beloved. He loves you. And so he afflicts you in order to draw you deeper into the embrace of Christ. In order to deepen your dependence on Jesus. It's with this truth and principle in mind that we come to 1 Peter chapter 5. In which Peter then introduces us to two categories of Christians. 
for whom this principle is most important. The first is the elders. The second is the youngers. Since that doesn't work in English, I have to give up the parallel. For the office of elders and for those who are under the authority of elders. For those who are elders and for those who are members. So the first category. How does this principle that our sufferings in this life are a manifestation of God's love for us in order to bring us into deeper fellowship with Jesus affect shepherds? First, notice in verse 1 that Peter says the elders are exhorted to shepherd the flock. But he gives his qualifications for this exhortation first. He is a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Jesus and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. By this, Peter is not merely putting off the apostle hat and noting that he himself is an ordained elder in a church like those elders. That is true. But ultimately, what Peter is doing is he's putting a hat on the head of an elder. And he's saying that we as elders all together have this in common. We are witnesses of the sufferings of Jesus. Elders are those who have seen with their own eyes the power and the effect of the cross of Christ. They are witnesses that the gospel works. First and foremost, in their own life. They have seen the sufferings of Jesus sanctify them. The men that we're looking for to put in the office of elder are men who have believed that the sufferings of Jesus are their salvation. Men who have embraced the cross of Christ as their identity and their life's worth and value. They are witnesses to the sufferings of Jesus. I've seen him save. He saved me. But so too they are witnesses of it in the lives of others. They have seen the gospel have good effect. It is a much lamented fact among many elders in Reformed churches that they say to one another, I've never led anyone to faith in Jesus Christ. A great and painful tragedy if true. I submit to you there's two things to consider about that statement. One is we are often ignorant of the impact of our, of our teachings and of our sharing. The reality is, is a great many elders have, have led people to Christ. They just don't know it because their lives have parted. The other is we're often looking at the wrong thing when we talk about leading people to Christ. We think it's that dramatic moment where I got to be there the moment someone prayed the sinner's prayer. Friends, that wasn't how evangelism was understood by the church through most of its history. That was something we invented in the early 20th century. Evangelism looks very different. What does it mean to witness the sufferings of Jesus changing people's lives? It means living with them and having long conversation with them and sharing the gospel with them. Every single person I have seen or heard pray the sinner's prayer in my presence was years in the making, not hours. Friends, have we seen the sufferings of Christ transform lives and are partakers of the glory that is to be revealed? This is what it means to be an elder, one who anticipates that the sufferings of Christ in this life will be swept away by the glory of Christ that is to come. That just as the sufferings of Christ save sinners now, 
so the glory of Christ comforts and satisfies them later. In this context, Peter tells his elders to shepherd the flock, being overseers. This phrase that we keep encountering, shepherd the flock, is here defined as overseeing. It has an immediate apparent expression. How does one shepherd the flock? You stand next to sheep and you look over top of them. You oversee them. You look over them. What are you looking for? Well, you're looking for wolves. Wolves eat sheep. You don't want wolves. So shepherds stand around looking across the top of the flock and going, Wolf, everybody over here. Wolf, everybody over here. You watch for wolves. Acts chapter 20, we already preached on that. You look over the flock. What do you look for? You look for the flock drinking from the water of life, Jesus Christ. And you say, little sheep, there's no water over there. Get over here where the water of life is. You look for the sheep to eat of the green pastures, the good grass that is Jesus Christ, the bread from heaven. And elders look over the flock and say, you're starving. Get over here and feast with Jesus. The elders look out over the flock and shepherd them, drawing them into Jesus. But Peter says there are three ways in which they are to do it. Willingly, eagerly, and as an example. By this, Peter means that the shepherding of the flock cannot be done by outside compulsion. Elders ought not to be forced into the office. Dude, I need to make that point very clear. Elders ought not to be forced into the office. It is a volunteer position. They must do it willingly. Secondly, elders ought not to do it for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Elders must have an orientation that says, I want to do this job, but I don't want to do it for me. I want to do it for you. That the benefit to me is not my goal. The benefit to the flock is the goal. We're looking for men who are willing to serve the sheep without any expectation of reward. And then thirdly, those who are not lords over the flock, but examples. How do you get sheep to move from no water to good water? Well, go with them. Walk with them from wilderness to water. How do you get sheep to get out of the sufferings of this life and into the joys of Jesus? You have to model it. You have to show them. I told you the story earlier on in the series, but last summer we were in Montana with our friends who have sheep. And they wanted to move the sheep from one pasture to the other pasture. They brought in the dogs, and the sheep scattered. They brought in all the kids, and the sheep scattered. And finally, the shepherd, all by himself, saying nothing at all, just walked through the pasture alone. And all the sheep went with him. Sheep don't respond well to being yelled at. Sheep don't respond well to being hit with a stick. Sheep don't respond well to being chased by dogs. They look like wolves. Sheep respond well to shepherds. Those who willingly, eagerly set an example, here's how you suffer. One of the sweetest stories I've ever seen of mentoring 
was when there was this old pastor who had spent his entire, not his entire, his students' entire life in ministry mentoring him, even from afar. They had met in seminary. He was a seminary professor. He discipled the young pastor. When the young pastor went off to his pastorate, they would stay in touch. They would fly to some city once a year, every year, to stay in touch. Finally, the aged seminarian pastor, professor, retired. And then finally, he got cancer. And when he had his death sentence, he called up the young pastor and he said, let me move in with you. I want to show you how Christians die. This is my last lesson. This is a shepherd. A shepherd says, let me show you how to suffer. Let me show you how to cry without shame, without sin, with a deepening dependence on Jesus. Let me willingly, eagerly model for you what it means to need Jesus, to know your need for Jesus, and to lean into that need. This is what it means to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's our Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will not fade away. The reward comes in the presence of Christ. The reward for shepherds, the reward for men who will lay down their lives for the flock is not found in these pews. It's not found in this preaching. It's found in Jesus. I had to learn this the hard way. I had to spend eight years planning a church to watch it die. So that the Holy Spirit could tell me, Noah, your reward isn't in the people and it isn't in the pews and it isn't in the preaching. Your reward is in Jesus. This is what it means to be an elder. This is what it means to shepherd the flock. Through the sin, through the sorrow, straight into the arms of Jesus. For this reason, Peter says, beginning in verse 5, you young people, a.k.a. not elders. So any one of you who has not been elected and ordained to the office of elder is, according to the Apostle Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a young person. Yes? Likewise, you young people, those who are not elders. Submit yourselves to the elders. Submit to their example. Be submissive to what they're trying to get you to do. Come with them into the fellowship of Jesus. Clothe yourself with humility. Draw near to God, for God resists the proud. What does the proud say to God? I don't need you. And God's answer is, watch. Go ahead. Do it on your own. Go ahead. Try it. Parents, we've done this with our kids a couple times, haven't we? Where our kids insist, I can tie my own shoes. And we go, go ahead. And a few minutes later, we tie their shoes. So it is with Jesus. God resists the proud. He says, all right, you want to have it your way? Fine, have it your way. Guess what happens? You don't like it your way. Your way is not good. Instead, he gives grace to the humble. The Puritans were fond of saying grace runs downhill. That is to say, the smaller we are, the more submissive we are, the more gracious and humble we are, the more grace is poured upon us. 
We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us at the proper time. The way to do this, according to verse 7, is we cast our care upon him and thus discover that he cares for us. Beloved, we pray. We cast our cares upon God as we suffer. This is how young people are to suffer. In submission to the example of their elders, following their elders in a prayer-filled faith in God, saying, I have all these cares. Notice Peter doesn't say that we live as if there were no cares. He doesn't say you're carefree. He says you have cares, and they are heavy, and they are hard, but there's something you can do with them. You can give them to your Heavenly Father. You can cast them on the Good Shepherd and know that He cares for you. This is what shepherding's effect is. If shepherding is going well in a church, there are a few metrics by which you can measure the effectiveness of the shepherding. Front and center is this. The people pray. Notice that. If the elders are good shepherds, the people pray. Our instinct as humans is to make humans the center of gravity, the center of attention. It is a huge temptation for me as a pastor. It is a huge temptation for you as a church to believe that if I'm doing a good job, you all are coming to me with all my problems, your problems. Man, that is so validating for me. All those people need me. Aren't I so wonderful? And yet Peter says that's not true. If I'm a good shepherd, you talk to your father more than you talk to me. If I'm a good shepherd, you pray. And you cast your cares upon him who cares for you. Then Peter says that all together, those who are both elders and those who are younger, are to together stand against the schemes of the devil. This is not an unrelated switch in the metaphor. Notice that Peter preserves his overriding imagery. Not only are we like sheep in need of shepherds who set an example for us in moving through our sufferings into deeper fellowship with Jesus, but we have a reason for it. Our devil is like a lion. What is the relationship between lions and sheep? Lions... Eat sheep. Do you know how they do it? This is what's really important about his imagery. They get the sheep alone. I I, I can't overstate this. Little sheep do not stand alone. Do you have membership in the church? Do you faithfully attend the worship services? Do you participate in a small group? Do you have a prayer partner or a Bible reading partner? You don't have to do them all. I don't mean that as an exhaustive, do all these things. I mean, do you have any of that? Or from Monday to Saturday, do you walk through this world alone and suddenly find that your faith is really weak and Satan is gnawing on your leg? That's how the lion works. Friends, we need to stay in the flock. 
We need to stay in the field of Christ. To draw near to the Savior, the Good Shepherd, to stay in proximity to Him. How do we resist the devil by not being isolated from Jesus? How do we stay sober, self-controlled, vigilant, watchful? We watch for Jesus. We see, there's the shepherd, get to him. Stay close to him. Do you know who actually keeps the lion away? David and his son. Do you remember what David did to lions? He grabbed them by the beard and beat them in the face with a rock. He did it to bears too. David's son, Jesus, is a better shepherd than David. He fights off the lions. He keeps us safe. What we as sheep must do is be vigilant, watchful. Where's my Jesus? How do I stay close to him? Be self-controlled. How do I keep my heart fixed on Jesus? My mind fixed on Jesus? Because he's roaming to and fro over the earth. That's Job chapter 2. Seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. We resist him steadfast in the faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that these sufferings, there's Peter's theme, that the things we suffer in this life are universal to the followers of Jesus. All the brotherhood experience this. The pain and the agony of living in this world are common to us as Christians. And for that reason, we stay close as Christians to our Christ. Peter then, in verses 10 and 11, ends with this great comfort, this great source of joy. But may the God of all grace, we were counting them up in family worship last night. Number one, may the God of all grace. How much grace does God have? More than you need. There was a Puritan, I don't remember which one. He was fond of saying, there's more grace in God than sin in you. Isn't that amazing? There's more grace in God than sin in you. He is the God of all grace. The grace you need for every sin, the grace you need for every suffering is found in God. Number two, he called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We are called to a future of glory, though the present is suffering. We are called to pass through in a state of sin and misery in order to arrive in an estate of heavenly bliss by Jesus Christ. After you have suffered, number three, the ESV will say, a little while. Isn't that a great phrase? If you had 80, 90, 100 years of just complete agony on this earth, you could still die and say, it was but a little while. No matter how great the suffering is, no matter how prolonged, it is a suffering that is only for a little while. Especially when you take this life compared to the life that is to come. And my arms don't go long enough because eternity is beyond the reach of a finite human being. But you get the point. Life is a little while, and all its suffering are for a little while. But then four more things that God does, he perfects, establishes, strengthens, and settles. He is the God of all grace who in Christ Jesus is moving us through a brief period of suffering into an eternal period of glory. He will perfect you. Every sin will be gone. He will establish you. 
You will not be shaken or afraid. He will strengthen you. Weakness will go. He will settle you. You will never be homesick again. For at last, when this little life and its brief suffering ends, you will finally go home. And so to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I got a phone call from my dad just this morning. I was standing on the ramp out here. He told me a story and I said, I'm going to use it on my church. It, Jesus does this, right? He puts a phone call in your life right before you preach a sermon that says, that's the story for you. My uncle David was sitting with my aunt Beverly this last week. He had just heard from the doctor that she's going to die and it's probably weeks, maybe months. The only surgery they can recommend has a 30% survival rating. She has a DNR, so they're not going to do it. There's not much hope. David is sitting with his sister, and he says to her, this is the news. And then he shrugs and says, so you'll probably be with Jesus pretty soon. And she got a giant smile on her face, sat up and said, sounds good. Jesus is sweeping away suffering with eternal glory. Jesus is sweeping away suffering with eternal glory. Suffer like your Savior. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for so great a gospel. For such abundant grace that in Christ Jesus there is the hope of heaven. Please shepherd us. Please teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That we, by your grace, might endure the things of this life with the hope of the life that is to come. That we might believe in these sorrows is joy. But in the glory to be revealed there is exceeding joy. We give you thanks for these things. We ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.